0: Bayonet Point, WTBN, Pinellas Park. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: It is a dangerous and serious thing to teach error. It is a defiance towards God. They know what they're doing. It is a deceptive thing. It is a wicked thing. And if God didn't spare exalted creatures like angels, he's not going to spare humans either. That's his point.
0: I read not long ago about a 2007 Gallup poll that showed that 81% of Americans believe in heaven, while only 69% believe in hell. I was a little surprised that those percentages were as high as they were, and I would guess that many of those who believe in one or both of those places don't really have a clear idea of what the Bible teaches about either. Our topic these past several days on Verse by Verse has been the dangers of false teachers. Pastor Steve Kreloff, teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, is teaching from chapter 2 of Second Peter. Today we move on to the first part of his third sermon in that challenging chapter, and it's based on verse 5. We human beings tend to think that if we're in a big enough group, we're less likely to be harmed by doing something unpleasant or dangerous. As Benjamin Franklin famously said at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, we must all hang together, or assuredly, we shall all hang separately. And you know, there's some truth to that idea. But if the people of Noah's day were operating on that principle, they were making a big mistake. And so were the false teachers of Peter's day, and not to mention the false teachers of our day. Here's Pastor Steve with today's Bible lesson to tell us why that is so.
1: One of the most obscure statements that Jesus ever made was a remark he, he said to his disciples as he was telling them about his second coming and the judgment that was to come. When he came back, he said this in Matthew twenty four twenty eight: wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Have you ever wondered what our Lord meant by that? What does a corpse and vultures gathering have to do with judgment? Well, it's, it's this. Jesus was making a simple analogy between a physical reality and a spiritual reality. Just as it is certain that when there's the physical corruption of a carcass, so vultures will gather to eat it. So it is also certain that when there is spiritual and moral corruption, God's judgment will surely fall. It's just a basic, timeless principle that moral corruption always leads to divine judgment. And one of the greatest examples of the validity of this truth Is the story of how God judged the, the ancient world in the days of Noah when he judged them with the flood. Now, Genesis six and seven tell us the story of this, but thousands of years later, the apostle Peter used this very incident of judgment in the form of a flood when he wrote second Peter chapter two. And he used this incident to support his claim that God will judge the false teachers who had infiltrated the, the early church and were instructing people in error. You'll recall, and you might as well turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, but you'll recall that Peter opened this chapter by making a statement of a fact that God will judge false teachers as they rebel and defy the Lord. He said it in chapter 2 verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies even denying the master who bought them bringing, notice this, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Peter says they're going to bring destruction upon themselves by their actions. Then at the end of verse 3, he says that their judgment from long ago is not idle. That is that God set in motion a principle of judgment, and it's not asleep. God will, will do it. So he starts off the chapter by telling us that there is a danger to false teachers, and they surely will be judged. Now, as Peter moves along, he presents three incidents from the Old Testament that prove that God most certainly will judge these false teachers, even though it may appear that they're getting away with their rebellion and defiance of the Lord. So he starts the chapter by making a statement of fact, they will be judged. He continues the chapter by telling us, they certainly will be judged, and let me prove that they will be judged. And he calls forth three incidents from the Old Testament in which God judged individuals to prove his point that God will judge them. We looked at the first of those incidents, the fallen angels. Verse 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for Judgment. We stopped there, but it's really one long sentence that goes to the beginning of verse 10. And what he's saying here is that when one third of all the angels joined Lucifer in his rebellion, Lucifer we know is Satan, in his rebellion against God's authority, God didn't spare them. God judged them. He cast some of them into a place which is uh, called in our Bibles hell, but it's really a compartment in hell. Literally translated, it should be Tartarus. Tartarus, the compartment in hell that is reserved for fallen angels. It is that compartment in which it's a place of torments, complete darkness, gloominess, and where they are being held even now. They have been held all of these years and will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire where they will permanently be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And the point that Peter appears to be making by by using this example, he could have used any example. There are many examples of God's judgment, but it seems to me that the point that he's making in using the example of the judgment of fallen angels is this, that if God didn't spare these exalted creatures, emphasis on their exaltation, these exalted spirit beings who were created by God to praise him and serve him, if he didn't spare even them, then don't think for one moment that mere humans who rebel by teaching error will be spared from judgment either. They won't. It is a dangerous and serious thing to teach error. It is a defiance towards God. They know what they're doing. It is a, it is a deceptive thing. It is a wicked thing. And if God didn't spare exalted creatures like angels, he's not going to spare humans either. That's his point. Now, in verse 5, Peter gives us the second Uh, of the Old Testament illustrations to demonstrate the certainty of God's judgment on false teachers. And it's the well-known incident of Noah and the flood. Let's read verse five. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now the incidents of the flood must have made a great impact on Peter. Why do I say that? Because Peter only wrote two letters, but in these two small letters, he mentions Noah and the flood three times. He mentions him in First Peter chapter three verse twenty. He mentions it again in Second Peter chapter three verses five and six, and he mentions it the third time here. In fact, Peter mentions the flood so often that he has been labeled the Apostle of the Flood. But Peter doesn't simply mention. Uh, the flood in chapter 2 because it made a huge impression upon him, though it did. But that's not the reason he mentions it. He seems to have an emphasis here, just as he had a point to make in emphasizing about the exaltation of the angels, so he seems to have an emphasis here in which he is saying that God judges all who defy him, even if it's an entire civilization, all the vastness of, of that population. See, One point that he seems to be making, and I think there's a twofold point here, but one point that he seems to be making is that his judgments will be with a vast number of people. God judges even when it involves a large population. It may very well have been that the false teachers of Peter's day thought that they were immune from judgment because there were so many of them. Remember, verse 3 tells us that many will follow their sensuality. That is to say, they were growing in popularity. And it may very well be that they thought that, look, there's safety in numbers. We're not going to be judged. We're getting popular. Many are following us. And they, they tended to feel secure that God wouldn't dare judge all of them. How could he do that? But by using the example of the flood, Peter reminds us that once in history, God judged an entire human population. The entire planet was judged apart from Noah and seven family members. God judged the entire human race. Now, the second point that he seems to be making an emphasis here is that though God judges all who defy him, and that emphasis is on all, none will escape, even if they are in the majority, yet he brings deliverance to those few who trust him. And that's why he brings in the great example of Noah and his family. So it's these two truths that God's judgment is over a vast number of people and God's deliverance is of the faithful few. That seems to be where Peter uh, is, is going. And that ought to be a great encouragement to us. I think it really should encourage us because it tells us that with all of the injustices in the world, and we look around, and we see people doing evil things they, that many appear to be getting away with uh, this passage tells us by by inference and application that uh, God will always deal with people's sin. It may not be on our timetable, but God will always address people's sin. Nobody will get away with sin. In fact, the scripture says, be sure your sin will find you out. And even if there's popularity now, and even if you feel very secure, and even if things seem to be going well, your sin will never go unpunished. I think it's also encouraging for us to be reminded that though the world will someday be judged for their sin, yet those who believe in Jesus Christ will never come into judgment. Why is that? Because the scripture tells us that Christ has taken our judgment. In fact, look, if you will, at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you can't find a quick, let me just read it to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 say this, For God has not destined us for wrath, meaning believers, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. We will never experience the wrath of God because Jesus Christ already has experienced it for us. And though the world will be judged for their sins, we who have accepted Christ will never be judged for our sins because judgment has already taken place, already taken place. So with this as our background, we want to examine how the judgment of the flood gives certainty to the fact that there is a coming judgment for false teachers, and not only false teachers, but for all who defy the Lord, all unbelievers. There are three major lessons that Peter gives us about the judgment of the flood. So if you're taking notes, this is where we're heading. Three major lessons that, uh, because there are three major points in verse five. Lesson number one, if the entire ancient world was not spared from judgment, then neither will anyone today. Who rebels against God? If the entire ancient world wasn't spared, then neither will anyone today be spared who rebels against God. We begin by looking at verse five and just the first phrase. Peter writes, and did not spare the ancient world. Peter begins verse five with actually the same wording that he used to express God's judgment of fallen angels, just as he didn't spare exalted angels from judgment, so he didn't even spare an entire world from judgment. Now let's think about that for a moment. He didn't spare an entire world. Peter reminds us that, that when God sent the flood, it wiped out the world. It wiped out the entire population, all people who were living on the face of the earth, apart from Noah and his family. Now, why would God do that? Let's turn back to Genesis chapter six to discover this. And I would encourage you to put a little bookmark in Genesis six, because we'll be looking at this again. Genesis chapter six is the passage that tells us about God sending the flood and why he sent the flood. Verses one and two read this way. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And these two verses really set the stage for the events that'll follow. They really set the stage for the flood. They explained some things to us. And what Moses, the writer of Genesis, is telling us is that sometime before the flood, there was a population explosion, which was a good thing because God had said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. And that's what was happening. Men began, Moses tells us, to multiply on the earth. Now, this makes sense, especially in light of the longevity of, of life before the flood. There were conditions on the earth that would encourage that. Uh, pre-flood conditions contributed to this. People lived many hundreds of years. Also, sin had not infiltrated the, uh, the, the planet as much, people's genes as much and all of that and, and, and so forth. So people lived a long time. In fact, in chapter five, verse 32, it says Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Shapheth. So, uh, that's an old dad. He's five, he's about 500 years and having these kids. So I just want you to know, Noah was still having children about 500 years of age. So people lived very long, and because of that, uh, there was a population explosion. It is reasonable to believe that before the flood, there were billions of people. Now, there may not have been quite that high, but it's reasonable to think that there were many people, even that many, just as there are today. So as mankind in general began to to multiply on the earth, verse 1 tells us that many daughters were born. In other words, part of the population uh, explosion included females, which only makes sense. And then verse 2 informs us that something took place that eventually brought about, connected to, the corruption of the human race. Let me read it to you again. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. A group of males, referred to here as the sons of God, were attracted to these good-looking females and therefore chose to marry them. Now, there's a very popular interpretation that goes back to this with the fallen angels that uh, that believes that, that the sons of God, mentioned in verse 2, were fallen angels who took on human bodies, or some would say they possessed human bodies, and married these women. Why would they do this? To corrupt the human race, the thinking goes, so as to prevent... The human Messiah from being born, the coming deliverer. Now, I think there are some good points of this, but, uh, I think there are better points to my view. And, uh, I, I really, I don't accept this view. I think this is, uh, there are many competent, wonderful Bible teachers who do. And, uh, I, I don't, I don't condemn them for that. Uh, but I think that there are some serious problems with this uh, this view, and we don't have time to go into those now, but we did take time when we studied Genesis. So if you're interested, go back to the tape library and get the tape on Genesis 6, in which I went into that view and uh, and the problems I have with that view. What I want to present to you is what I believe happened, what I believe is the correct view of this passage. Now, keep in mind the structure of the book of Genesis. What is, what is the purpose of this section in Genesis? It is this. It is to reveal to us what happens to a certain line of descendants from Adam. Notice chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. You'll notice, and we just really finished several months ago uh, our study on Genesis, you'll notice that every time Moses wants to make a, a, a section of the book, he makes a clean break. He says, this is the generation, or this is the book of the generations of, and then he tells you about the descendants Of that person. So, in context here, he's telling us whatever happened to the descendants of Adam, but not just any old descendants of Adam. If you notice, go back two verses of chapter 4, verses 25 and 26, and he's telling us about whatever happened to the line of Seth who came from Adam. Verse 25 Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, uh, to Seth, to him, also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It appears at this point in human history that people just disregarded the Lord, that they didn't call upon the Lord, but there was a godly line. Cain was a wicked line, but God gave a godly line, a godly son to Adam and Eve named Seth, And in his line, and that's really what chapter 5 is about, the line of Seth, there were many godly people. It's not to say everybody was godly, but there were many godly people in that line. So chapter 5 is about whatever happened to the godly line of Seth. And the answer, according to chapter 6, is that they became corrupted just like the rest of mankind. How? Well, because the sons of God, who I take from the context of this, has nothing to do with angels, but the line of Seth. That's, that's what he's been talking about. They're called the sons of God. The line of Seth took wives on the basis of what? Looks only, good-looking females. In other words, the Sethites intermarried with women from other unbelieving family lines, like the line of, of Cain, the ungodly line of Cain, which is what chapter 4 is about. Without any regard for their spiritual status, their spiritual walk, godly standards, they were just physically attracted to these women. They didn't care uh, whether these women had faith or not. They just were attracted to them physically, and there was a lot of lust involved. And they married them. They didn't care about their spiritual status. Now, there's nothing wrong with recognizing the uh, the beauty of a of a woman, but that's not the basis for getting married. I mean, it's got to be some chemical attraction there, but the, but that's not the basis, the sole basis for getting married but that's what Seth's line made as the basis for marriage without any other consideration. And folks, the result was that after centuries of being unequally yoked with unbelievers and having children who didn't care about the Lord anymore, and then the standards were, were down, the line of Seth spiritually eroded to the point where, watch this, there were no more godly descendants, no more believers on the face of the earth, except Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. That's what happened. You see, the years leading up to the flood, those few who were genuine believers in the Lord, continually married non-believers, and over an extended period of time, there was so little regard for any spiritual standard that eventually there were no believers on the earth. That's what happened. Imagine being on on a world with no believers, except Noah and his family. See, the, son, the children of these unequally yoked parents, they didn't want anything to do with God. They didn't have any example from their uh, from their parents. Eventually, there were no more believers, No no one who was trusting the Lord. And because the human race had so degenerated and the spiritual and moral conditions were so bad that God decided to wipe out everybody and start all over again with Noah and his sons. And notice how bad it got. Chapter six, verses five through seven. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I'm sorry that I have made them. And then just jump down to verses 11 through 13. Now, the earth was corrupt in the sight of, of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, and the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Now, this was the moral climate of this world, of uh, the world of Noah's day. Violence, think about that, violence and no restraint upon it no restraint on sin everyone doing what they wanted the bible says the thoughts of of their hearts were continually evil continually it was sin unchecked it was a world god man with, with mad with sin no justice no compassion no integrity imagine living in a world in which there are no believers but just one family no believers in the world out of billions let's say of people and that was the ancient world the ancient world of billions that Peter said God decided not to spare. A whole planet was wiped out. What does this tell us about God? It tells us that he's never going to let anyone get away with sin. Never going to let anyone get away with sin. See, I think there's a tendency to think that the more people who participate in condone sin, the safer it is. I mean, that's where our society is. It's sort of, this is the popular, popular thing to do. This is the, in fact, somebody just said to me recently, uh, we were discussing uh, an issue of the Bible, and this is a person who doesn't believe in the Lord and isn't interested at all. But this person said to me, when I brought up a moral standard, they said, "How long ago was the Bible written?" And what they were really saying is, says, "Look, it's it's an ancient book. It's it's archaic. Nobody holds to that anymore. It's it, you're out of step with the times. You know what? We are out of step with the times. But God's standards never change. Uh, there is no safety in numbers. But that's what people think." By not sparing the ancient world, God reveals that vast numbers will never shelter anyone from experiencing God's wrath. There's no comfort in, in numbers.
0: I doubt that anyone really knows how many people died on Long Island on September 21st, 1938, but there were plenty. For some reason, the meteorologists either ignored or didn't believe their instruments and gave no warning. One man I read about had just bought a new barometer, which arrived that very morning. He opened it up, and it read under 29, way down there in the hurricane and tornado part of the dial. Well, he banged on it and banged on it, trying to get it to read right. Finally, in frustration, he took it to the post office to send it back. Well, while he was gone, his house blew away, as other residents fled from a 40-foot wave generated by the approaching hurricane. History is full of stories about people ignoring the warnings of impending disaster. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Verse by Verse is the radio ministry of Lakeside. To listen again to this lesson or any of the others in our audio archive, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org. We also make available CDs with the entire message without announcements. You can order yours by calling Lakeside at 727-239-0306. If you call after hours, just leave a message with your daytime phone number and someone will return your call. That's 727-239-0306. Noah lived in a profoundly wicked world, and if you hadn't already noticed, so do we. Does this mean there's another global flood coming? No, but there is a different judgment on the way. This is Jerry Peterson inviting you to join Pastor Steve Kreloff again for the next Verse by Verse. We'll stay in Chapter 2 of Second Peter, but Pastor Steve...